I stepped into Bill's Sunday school class this morning, and the first thing I hear is the question, what is courage? What is courage? And they're talking about the definition. My, my opening statement for my sermon, right off my notes here, what is courage? <laughs> Thanks for ruining it for me, Bill. No. I love how God does that. Things that overlap. What is courage? You know, when I think of courage, I often think of the action movies that we see in our culture. You know, the hero that faces a situation where clearly they're outnumbered, clearly there's no hope for survival, and they just get that stern look on their face, and they just go for it, and they feel no fear, they feel no pain, they just go for it. And as we watch those things, we think, I, at least I do, I never feel that way. What's wrong with me? If that's our picture of courage, we are going to live with a lot of guilt. Because I don't know about you, but I feel fear often. Facing difficult situations. Moments in life where we are reminded that we are desperately human and greatly in need. A couple weeks ago in the opening of a sermon, I shared about the problem I've had since I was in junior high school about my lungs and how they just collapse every once in a while. Thursday, God reminded me, still a thing, and it happened again. I'm okay, but it, it is one of those things in my life that God uses to remind me, you, Dave Day, need me. You are not in control. Ended up kind of laying around, sleeping most of the afternoon Thursday, all day Friday, got up a little bit Friday because I, I uh, run the youth group here and I got up, I had to run to church, I left my computer here, so I got up to come in and I got back home and I, I, I called Becky, she was out running errands and I said, I can't do it. I said, I just can't. It, it hurt too much. So what is courage? H how do we in our desperation and our fear have a proper understanding of what courage is. I found a quote by Mark Twain. He said, courage is the resistance to fear, the mastery of fear. I think that's getting closer to a better definition. It's not an absence of fear. It's what you do with the fear. I think a good biblical definition is courage is the determination to do the right thing, no matter the odds, and no matter the cost. The determination to do the right thing. Fear says, look at all the problems, look at the danger, look at the possible failure of this outcome. Fear says, focus there. Courage says, I see that. But there's something I have to do because it's the right thing to do. Courage is a higher calling than our personal comfort or safety. It's a higher obligation than our personal likes and wants. Courage is doing the right thing no matter the cost. Friends, we need courage today. Specifically, we need courage in the church. We need Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, who know what is right. 
that the ultimate reason we are here is to live for the glory of God and to be communicators, proclaimers, and demonstrators of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians live in fretting and in fear. What our lives end up broadcasting is that we don't really believe there's a God on his throne who's in control. So today I want to talk about courage and strength. We're in this sermon series called Focal Point, where we're going through all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And if you haven't been with us over the past several weeks, we covered creation. We looked at sin entering the world with Adam and Eve and what they did. We looked at God's call on Abraham, this reestablishing of a relationship with sinful people through Abraham and his family who would become the Israelites. We looked in the past several weeks at the rescue from Egypt and the Exodus, God miraculously saving his people out of Egypt. And then for the past two weeks, we took a pit stop there at Mount Sinai. And we looked at how God communicated the law through Moses to the people. We looked first for one week at the tabernacle and how important that is and what it meant for them. And then last week, we looked at an overview of why God gave the law and the incredible grace and mercy in the law that was given through Moses. Today, we're covering the books quickly of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. We are picking up steam. We're going to be going much faster. Some of you might have favorite stories in some of these books that we're not even going to mention. I apologize for that. We're not going verse by verse. There's just no way that we can do it. But this time period covers about 450 years. I like to remember, just to remind myself, because I think sometimes I'm a little historically illiterate, And I like to remember, as a country, the United States has been around for just over 200 years. That helps me. Because I think of, you know, the founding fathers and and George Washington. I think of those guys as like ancient history. So when I read something and go, we're about to cover 450 years, we're covering something that took twice as long as the United States has been a thing. That helps me to put it in perspective. For 450 years, we're going to look at this time of them coming and entering into the promised land. We're going to look at the time of the judges and the mess that that was. And then at the end, we're going to look at this beautiful picture of this little family, this intimate setting, and this wonderful picture of faith that we see through Ruth. We're going to look at courage through some great examples and some really horrible examples. So let's start with Joshua. Open up to Joshua chapter 1. Just to give context and to catch us up from last week, they left Mount Sinai. They come to the promised land that God has promised them that he will help them to conquer, and they show fear, and they fail to trust God. So for 40 years, they end up wandering in the wilderness The generation that was in Egypt enslaved, they have died off. Their children have risen up and aged. And now they're back at the promised land and they're about to enter it again, but this time for the first time. They struggled in their wilderness wanderings. They struggled with idolatry. They struggled with faith. They struggled with many things. 
And so we have a people group that is struggling to trust God, and yet they're being led by God, and they want to take those steps of faith. I think we can identify with that. I want to look at three brief scenes from Joshua's life to help us understand what's going on in the nation of Israel at this time. Let's look in verses 1 through 9. Let me just read this for us. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea to the west or in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So there they are. This thing that they've been hoping for, dreaming of, trusting in for over 40 years. They're about to get it. They're about to go into the promised land. They've experienced so many of the miracles of God over the years, seeing how God has been faithful. And yet there they are on the side of the Jordan River, and just on the other side is this small little thing in their way called Jericho. Jericho was one of the biggest cities in Israel, certainly one of the most fortified cities in Israel. Now, remember, they come out of Egypt as slaves, this ragtag group of refugees wandering through the wilderness. They're not an army. They face some battles, but they're a group of women and children and men and old and young. And here they are looking at that city in the distance going, oh boy, what are we going to do Now, this is, I think, something we need to wrestle with, though. God has commanded them to go into the promised land and to fight against, overthrow, and even wipe out the inhabitants of that land. Modern people want to read this and say, this is barbaric. How can this be? How can I trust in a God that would do this? There's something very helpful in Genesis chapter 15. You don't have to turn there. But God is giving a promise to Abraham. We've talked about God's covenant with Abraham. And in that promise, God says something. Chapter 15, verse 16 of Genesis. God says the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. This is several hundred years before Joshua and the Israelites get to the border. It's a long time ago. What God is saying is that he has given a time of mercy to the people in this land. He has waited. We don't know what he's been doing there. We don't know about prophets or messengers that have been sent there. We don't know if they were or they weren't. The Old Testament primarily follows 
the storyline of the Israelites. What we do know is that God was fully aware of what was going on in the land. He knows and has judged them as being sinful, and yet he has delayed bringing punishment. I just want to say at this point, too, because I think as Christians, we fall down on two sides of this issue. One side is, well, God isn't punishing something, so it must not be that big a deal. God must be okay with it because he's allowing it. Not true. Do not ever take God's inaction as God's approval. God has his own time. And here, with the people in the land and their sin, he is waiting. The other error that we fall down on is thinking God is cruel and horrible to command his people to go into this land and to wipe out these people. Now, I want to be very careful. This command was given to them in this day, okay? As Christians today, it is not our command to overthrow and wipe out our culture. Okay, so just in case anybody's wondering that, it's not what the New Testament says. This is not for us. But at the same time, I think part of the thing we don't understand is how bad these cultures were. These cultures were rampant with sin and idolatry. They were known not just in biblical literature, but in archaeological literature. These people frequently sacrificed their own children in a fire. There are evidences of bronze metal statues that were created with their arms outstretched, and they would build up a fire and put the infant in that statue's arms. These were wicked people. And they thought that maybe by sacrificing their child, they would get a better life. They would somehow earn their future freedom and comfort. We haven't come very far, have we? Quite frankly, we just no longer wait until they're born. And under the guise of personal freedom and happiness, our culture is still slaughtering the lives of innocent children. And God was patient with them, just as he is being patient with us. And so here God's people are facing these insurmountable odds of this very wicked but very strong people group that are entrenched in some of these fortified cities. And failure seems certain. What are they going to do? We see Joshua's source of strength and courage in verses 5 and 9. He says in verse 5, No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life as I was with Moses. This is God talking. So I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. That changes the picture, doesn't it? Oh, we see the walls. We see the river that we don't know how we're going to get across. We hear the mission that we're supposed to do. For us, it's taking the gospel in the world. It seems no less possible or no more possible for us. And we live in fear. And yet God says, I am with you. And then in verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. 
our culture, our world today, we're taught to make ourselves feel better because we are enough. You are enough to face your situations. No, we aren't. And the truth is relying on you are enough brings more fear. That's just like watching the action movies and going, man, I wish I could be like him or like her, but I'm not. The Bible doesn't say you are enough. It doesn't put that burden on us. It puts it where it belongs on God. God says to us, he is enough and he is with us. This was Joshua's courage. This was what was to be the courage of the Israelites, trusting that the Lord their God is with them and that they were following him. God gives Joshua a very difficult mission. In verse 6, he says, You will lead these people to inherit the land I, I swore to their ancestors to give them. Joshua knows these people. He's been with them a long time. He's one of the few that still survived after they left Egypt. He's lived through the whole wilderness wandering. He's seen how they treated Moses, how they treated Aaron, how they tried to rebel and walk away, how they wanted to go back to Egypt and become slaves again. He's seen it. And I'm sure Joshua's going, oh God, could I maybe get a different people group to lead? Because man, these people are rough. They tend to chew up and spit out their leaders. But the reminder of God saying, I am with you, had to give him great strength. Another thing that was important to Joshua in verses 7 and 8, be strong and very courageous. Do you see how many times that's repeated? But then he says this, be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Joshua's way of strength and courage was to know and obey God. I think too often we have a lot of Christians today that are trying to be strong and trying to be courageous, but we don't know God's word to us. God knew as he's commanding Joshua and he's commanding the Israelites that their strength was going to come from knowing him. It is impossible to have a strong faith without also loving the word of God. Saturate your lives with God's word that you might be strong and courageous. And so Joshua leads the people into the promised land. In Joshua 3, we have this miraculous account again of God separating the waters of the Jordan and leading his people through on dry land. And I read these things in the Old Testament. And I think, God, why don't you do those things today? Everybody would be a Christian if you would just do these incredible miracles. Because man, anybody that saw a miracle like that, there's no way they could ever doubt or struggle again. And then you read the Old Testament and realize how wrong we are. Generation after generation after generation sees these amazing miracles. And right away they show doubt and disbelief and disobedience. But they come to that first obstacle, this walled city of Jericho. God doesn't warm them up with easy things. He takes them right to one of the hardest ones. And shortly before the battle of Jericho, we have another scene that I want to look at. I love this passage in Joshua. Turn to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, verse 
13. It is the night before the battle. The night before they are to try to take this city. Let me just read for us uh, uh, 13 through 15 real quick. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This man, this one who appears like a man is either a messenger of God, an angel, or it's quite possible this is an appearance of God to his people. It's a little unclear which, but the words that are spoken are clearly from the Lord. And Joshua has this question for this man, whose side are you on? Are you for us? Are you going to help us? Are you for our enemies and you're going to help them? And I love the response in chapter 5, verse 14. And, And I think if we could get this, it would change our relationship with God. The man who might be an appearance of God or an angelic being speaking on God's behalf, and he says this, neither. I'm not for you. I'm not for your enemies. Joshua, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not whose side is God on. The question is who is on God's side. So often we want to say, God, I'm doing this. I just want you to bless me. I'm going to try to do this. Can you bless it? Can you just bless my way? Can you make everything work for me? And God's going, I have a plan. You need to trust me. We get this wrong so often. And Joshua needed a a change in his perspective to understand Joshua to have courage and faith and strength. You need to see what God is doing and trust him. Not just ask God to bless what you are doing. Some summary of some events in Joshua. This is such a famous Bible passage. You know that God commands his people to walk around, march around the city, blowing trumpets, and the walls miraculously, without a battle, the walls fall down. And they walk into the city and conquer it. Throughout the book of Joshua, there are many battles. They take major city after major city. Sometimes the battles go great, sometimes not so well. But as we come to the end of the book, there's another scene that I want to look at. The Israelites have conquered all the major fortified cities. I think sometimes we get the impression at the the end of Joshua that like the promised land is completely uh, conquered. That's not true. The major cities were conquered. The the, The structures of power had been torn down, but there was still work to be done. The Israelites had to spread out and live in the land. And they were to finish taking the land and overthrow the remaining people that lived there. Which leads to this last scene. Turn to Joshua 24. Joshua gathers the leaders of the people together. And in verses 1 through 13, he reminds them. He he gives them a sermon. He tells them and reminds them everything that the Lord has done up until this point. He talks about some of the major themes that we've been looking at. He starts with Abraham. 
and how God made a commitment to Abraham. He walks through the Exodus and how God saved his people. And now Joshua gives the people a choice. Look at verse, or, uh, yeah, verses 14 and 15. At the end of this history lesson, Joshua says this to the people. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped before or beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems un- undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. What a powerful statement of faith. And, and, and I want to I, I draw emphasis here on Joshua and how incredible, courageous, and strong he is. But at the same time, I want to look at the choice he's presenting to the people. Think about what he's saying. Hey, guys, Remember the Egyptians? Yeah, remember like all the gods and goddesses they worshipped? Remember how God proved that the one true God was so much stronger than all of them? Yeah, you could serve them. God beat them. He's more powerful than them, but, but you could serve them. Remember the gods and the goddesses and the idols of the people in our land and how they trusted in them and, and they served them? Re- remember how the Lord just led you to defeat them and God is stronger than them? You could worship them, but the Lord is greater than them. Friends, we face this choice constantly. We have throughout Scripture the record of the greatness and the power of God. If nothing else, we can go to the cross and the resurrection and see that our Lord conquered sin and death that we might have new life. But we're still given this choice. Here's the smorgasbord of things in the world that you might think will make you happy. Here's all the choices. You could serve any of them. But don't forget, the one true God is greater than all of it. Choose this day whom you will serve. And I think a lot of people think, well, I'm just not really making a choice. I'm just kind of agnostic. I'll just go with what works. Not making a choice is a choice. Because the Bible makes it very clear there's God's way and then anything else. It doesn't matter what other way there is or what other way we choose or if we even don't choose a way, if we're not trusting in the one true God, we have made a choice. Joshua's strength and courage came from choosing to trust in God's work, not relying on himself. Strength and courage comes from God. We can't manufacture it. We can't ramp ourselves up and motivate ourselves to be strong and courageous. We have to ask ourselves, whose side are we on? And when the answer is, I am trusting in the one true God, and he has promised me that he is with me, that's the source of true courage and faith. The book of Joshua ends on this, this high note. For the most part, seems like everything's going to be great. And then we get to Judges. If Joshua is a story of courage and strength, Judges is a story of weakness and failure. The book of Judges takes place over 400 years, and it follows a pattern. We're not going to look at every single one. We're not going to look at every single judge. 
But there's a pattern. I call it a downward spiral in the book of Judges. If you look at Judges 2.18, this is kind of the end of the first spiral, but it sets up how it all begins. At the beginning of the spiral, we have God's deliverance. God miraculously delivers his people. In Judges 2.18, we are told whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies. As long as the judge lived, for the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. These are not judges in robes sitting on a bench in in court. These are leaders that rose up to usually raise up an army and overthrow whatever foreign nation was coming in and attacking them and giving them a hard time. And so God would raise up a leader and miraculously deliver his people. Awesome. That's step one of the spiral. God saves his people. Step two, they disregard God. Judges chapter 2 verse 10 After that whole generation has been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. I think it's so interesting in the cycle of judges, the first step is not disobedience. It's disregard. It's ignoring God. It's forgetting. It's treating him as if he's just not important. That's where it starts, friend. When, when we think that God is not important in our life or in our world, that's when the downward spiral is really beginning to take off. So we have God's deliverance, then they begin to disregard God. In Judges 2, 11 and 12, we see they disobey God. Then the Israelites did what was evil in the, lies, or in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped God. Various gods of the people around them, they aroused the Lord's anger. Remember how I said the cultures that lived in this land were really awful? One of the most heartbreaking things in the Old Testament is that God's people did the exact same things. Including the statues and the babies. This is a dark, dark time in Scripture. God's people who had his promises, who saw him appear before them, who had been saved by God over and over again, who had been chosen by God to be his representatives in the world, acted just like the nations around them. But it's not done yet. The next step in the downward spiral was difficulty. God would allow or cause foreign armies to come in and oppress his people. Look at chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. They were in great distress. And so the cycle begins again. They cry out, God, help us. Where are you? We're trusting in you. He raises up a leader, miraculously saves them. They forget about him. They disobey him. 
He brings in another trouble into their life. They cry out for a savior. He saves them. And on and on and on the downward spiral of Judges goes. Flip to Judges 17. In Judges 17, toward the end of the book, we get this summary. And it's so telling because it gives us an insight into exactly why this was all going on. In Judges 7, or 17 rather, verse 6, it says this, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Two things that points out they had no king. Now, they shouldn't have needed a king. In the Old Testament and the law, God made it clear he was their king. But he did give them provisions for a human king because he knew one day they would want that. But the reason they struggled because they had no king is that they failed to recognize that God was their king. But look at that last part. Everyone did as he saw fit. I think another way to say this is that everyone did what they wanted. Everyone did what would make them happy. Doesn't that seem like a great way to live? Let's just let everybody choose what will make them happy. And what you get is the judges. A time of chaos and misery. And they keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And at the heart of their mistake is the misguided notion that they are in charge of their own lives. And they forget that God is God and they are not. The parallels again today are remarkable. This idea of everyone see or everyone doing as they see fit. The idea today of personal choice and personal happiness is the standard of right and wrong in every way of our culture. And it brings chaos Every day we face a choice. Are we going to trust God and be courageous? Or are we going to go any other way and be thrown to the winds and the waves of personal choice and personal freedom and so-called happiness? As far as I can tell from our culture, it doesn't seem to be making anyone very happy. There's one more book we need to look at very quickly. Turn to the book of Ruth. If you're at the end of Judges, hang a right a page or two and you'll be there. Because Ruth is this beautiful picture in this nightmare time of the judges. And the book of Ruth seems so strange. We're in these historical books and they're broad, sweeping paintings of God's working through his people over hundreds of years. And then all of a sudden, the spotlight is turned to this handful of people. This one family living during this time. And it's unique because the book of Ruth is about a woman and a foreign woman. She is part of these people groups that the people of Israel were told not to marry. So if that was such a big deal, why does God put a book right there about one of these women? Because God wants us to take notice of something. The book of Ruth is shocking in its inclusion in Scripture. And I think that is precisely the point God wants us to open our eyes and take notice. The context, all the context we need is right there in verse 1. In the days when judges ruled. That's the context of the book of Ruth. 
What's going on in the world? Well, we just talked about it, the cycle of the judges, the nightmarish cycle of the judges and the Lord's people being consistently unfaithful. And in this scene, we're drawn into this family, a man who has two sons, and he and his wife and two sons, for whatever reason, they leave their home in Judah and they go to live in this foreign country of Moab. I don't know if it was because things were just so bad or what it was, but this is what they do. And there, they don't live the good life. The father dies and the two sons die. Now, the two sons had gotten married to foreign foreign women in Moab. And so here the mother, Naomi, is wanting to go back home. And she looks at her daughters-in-law and he says, you both need to go back to the family of your father. This is not her being cruel. It's not her being unloving. In fact, this is a very loving act. She needed them to help her, but she knew there was nothing for them in Israel. They would have been outcasts and hated people. And, and the way in that culture, kind of their welfare system, was that you were to be taken care of either in your father's household or in your new husband's household. And so when those things broke down, These women were in big, big trouble. And so she talks to her daughters-in-law and tells them to go back to their family. One of them does, but the other, you can guess her name, decides to go with Naomi. Ruth decides to go with Naomi. And we read this beautiful passage in Ruth Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging what a, a beautiful passage. And, and one of the most important things there is your God will be my God. Ruth makes a decision to give up the gods and goddesses of her people and trust in the one true God. That's part and partial to what's going on here. And it's crucial to understand the rest of the story. She is joining with the Lord's people and trusting in their God. There's an important word throughout the Old Testament in the Hebrew language. In English, it's loosely kind of translated, transliterated as hesed. Hesed is this understanding, I think the King James usually translates it as loving kindness, which is good. It, the problem is we don't have a very good English word for this. Hesed means a promise-keeping love, a committed covenant love. And it's used over and over again of God's love for his people Israel, and it's used of how they were supposed to love him, and yet throughout the book of Judges, they are lacking in hesed. They are not true to their love for God. And then God holds up this woman, this foreign woman, Ruth, who shows more hesed than all the Lord's people at that time put together. And she becomes this beautiful picture of a promise-keeping, 
promise-fulfilling loyalty, kindness, and love. Throughout the rest of the book of Ruth, she goes home with Naomi. She ends up like a pauper collecting food in a, a field. And eventually she meets this man, Boaz, who is what's known as a kinsman redeemer. This family relative who could save Ruth and, and redeem the property of Naomi's family and take care of this family. Boaz knows of another relative and they reach out to him. And this guy's like, yeah, sure, I'll take their property. And then he goes, oh, and you'll have to marry Ruth, the Moabitess. And he's like, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. He didn't want to bring shame on his family by bringing this foreign woman into his household. And so Boaz makes this incredible decision. And he marries Ruth and he redeems her. Turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. At the end of Ruth, it's one of these passages that I think we struggle with. We try to skip over. It's a whole bunch of names. I'm not going to read it. But look at 18 through 22. Do you see it there? The genealogy. It's a list of names, descendants. And it traces these people down to David. There's a name that in the book of Ruth, the genealogy leaves out that Matthew puts back in. He quotes this passage. And when he gets to Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Matthew puts in whose mother was Ruth. This foreign woman who everybody else would have rejected. Matthew's like, don't miss this. This is the great-great-grandmother of King David and the distant relative of Jesus Christ. Friends, God is not racist. Ruth is this great example of God working with people that that were of another race, of another people group, and the Bible is full of these things. Ruth shows us that God can and does use anyone, but we must trust him. So what do we do with Joshua, Judges, and Ruth? We see great courage and great victory. We see people struggling. I think we can identify with all of these. And then we get to Ruth and there's this picture. I'm going to trust the Lord come what may. I don't know where this will lead, but I will keep on trusting. And we are reminded that like Ruth, there's a much bigger picture going on. The one true and perfect king for them was coming. For us has come. All of this points us to Jesus Christ who would save us from our own desires and our own way of doing things, who would reign on the throne forever, and more than anything, who would die in our place to save us from our sins. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion that reminds us of this, is this living demonstration that we partake in to declare, I am trusting in Jesus as my Savior. And I love looking at these Old Testament stories and seeing how all of them point us to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these ancient stories that are still so contemporary relevant. But help us to understand them. Help us to bow before your throne in humility and say, teach us. Open our eyes. God, help each one of us to make choices daily to trust you, to follow you, to be strong and courageous in our faith in you. That we might be reminded that you are with us. You have promised us through your word to be with us 
daily, constantly. You have given us a mission in this world to reach out with the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves people. God, we are nervous and scared and overwhelmed. And yet, because of you and your presence, we can be strong and courageous. And Father, like Ruth, may we point people in our life to our Redeemer, the one who saves us, your Son who died on the cross to save us from our sins. In whose name we pray, amen.